Hello and welcome again back for another edition of Irreligiosophy and this week we have actually conned Michael Dowd to come onto our show and have a slight discussion with us. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, you're a reverend, right, Michael? Uh, yeah, I was ordained in, uh, in the United Church of Christ back in 1990 and I ended up pastoring three churches over the course of a decade. That's fascinating. And now you actually go around uh, preaching evolution and uh, religion together, kind of combining them. Oh, well, no, definitely not combining them. Uh, I preach and teach evolution, our best scientific understanding of evolution, and I show how uh, a mainstream evidential worldview uh, based on science can enrich and strengthen and deepen people's faith of whatever faith background. And what I mean by faith isn't beliefs, I mean trust. So basically, yeah, I'm, I'm helping religious people celebrate evolution. Well, that's very interesting. Well, why don't we start out by having you introduce yourself, give us a, a little bit of your background, your scholarly history, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, okay, Michael Dowd. I uh, was raised uh, Roman Catholic, had a born-again experience in my teenage years because I was struggling a lot with drugs and alcohol and sexual issues. Um, was involved for several years in an Assemblies of God Pentecostal context. I actually went to an Assemblies of God college. Um, I used to pass out tracts and would argue with anybody who thought the world was more than a few thousand years old. I was very threatened by the evolutionary perspective. Ended up accepting evolution at Evangel College. A part of it is because I discovered that at almost all the evangelical colleges and centers they teach evolution. Um, and then ended up wholeheartedly embracing evolution in 1988. Uh, Thomas Berry, who just died two weeks ago, Father Thomas Berry, uh, was one of the main mentors for most of us in a sacred evolutionary perspective, uh, this movement. Um, he, um, uh, he, I was introduced to his work, and I knew that I'd spend the rest of my life popularizing this perspective. I knew it was my, my appointment with destiny in 1988. So since then, I've been studying evolution, uh, all the different aspects of it, uh, biological, cosmological, geological uh, uh, cultural evolution, and um, always seeking to interpret it in the most inspiring ways possible, um, and in the ways that, that that motivate people to be in action in service of a healthy world for future generations. So I did that. Uh, uh, I pastored, ended up pastoring three churches, three United Church of Christ congregations, and then did environmental sustainability and community wor organizer work for six years, where I helped uh, Jewish rabbis, Catholic priests, Protestant clergy, and evangelical clergy uh, come together and support each other in, uh, well, basically, first I, I worked uh, nationally and helped religious leaders come together and uh, on key environmental issues that were coming up for voting Congress. And then for five years after that, I helped neighbors uh, in Portland, Oregon, and then in Rockland County, New York, uh, five years in Oregon and then uh, two years in New York. I help neighbors come together and support each other in using less water, driving less, composting, recycling, basically all the different aspects of living a more sustainable, earth-friendly lifestyle, and building trust and community with their neighbors in the process. Many of these people had never even met their neighbors. And then I met Connie uh, in 2000, and we fell in love as mission partners. We've both been um, uh, involved in this epic of evolution movement, religious naturalism movement for many, many years. And... Um, we fell in love as mission partners, and we had this vision of living on the road, and for seven years, that's all we've done. We've permanently traveled North America. That's all we do is we live out of people's homes. We uh, stay with people in their homes, take over their guest bedrooms, and make that our office, uh, and then uh, and uh, set up our card tables and laptops. But we sleep in our van, and uh, we preach and teach uh, mainstream understanding of evolution, but we do it in mythic ways. We, we teach evolution in an inspiring, religiously nourishing so you, briefly, you, you were raised Roman Catholic, and uh -huh. you, you went from there to an evangelical standpoint, is that right? Right, raised Roman Catholic, and then had a, a so-called born-again experience, then was raised, then was for four years in an Assemblies of God Pentecostal context, both a Pentecostal church and Pentecostal college. Was it evolution that uh, caused you to give that up? Um, yeah, well, yes and no, not really. I mean, I was... Uh, double major philosophy and religious studies, uh, philosophy and biblical studies actually, uh, but, and then went to uh, Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, Ron Sider was, uh, I was Ron Sider's assistant for a year. He's, uh, he wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger and written a lot of books. He's one of the leaders in the radical evangelical world. And uh, so I was at, at uh, Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's now called Palmer Seminary in Philadelphia for three years. And I ended up pastoring three churches, three United Church of Christ congregations. So one was in uh, southeast Ohio, 
that was my second church. Actually, the first one was in Western Massachusetts. The second one was in Southeast Ohio, and then the third one was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So, if it wasn't entirely evolution, what caused you to uh, leave the evangelical worldview? Well, I just kind of kept expanding to include other things. I, I don't consider myself an ex-evangelical. I would call myself a, uh, an, a, a an evangelical naturalist, a Pentecostal naturalist. I'm a religious naturalist, a uh, Christian naturalist. Notice I interpret all the mythic. Um, supernatural sounding language, all the night language, uh, the poetic, mythic sort of night language, I interpret in natural ways. Uh, and so I think part of it was just I kept finding there was truth, divine truth, uh, ultimate truth, uh, in many other settings than just the narrow confines that my tradition was offering. And uh, ultimately came to uh, deeply value uh, science as revelatory. I mean, I you know, to use God language and sometimes, you know, I speak very, over the last seven years I've spoken to more than a thousand different groups from ranging from very, very religious, devoutly religious of various different religious stripes and backgrounds to radically anti-religious and everything in between. And um, uh, so sometimes I use God language, sometimes I don't. But what I'm meaning, whenever I do use God language, what I'm talking about is reality, personified, the personification of what is undeniably real. And science gives us a better understanding of that than ancient religious texts could possibly hope to. Well, curiously enough, we actually had uh, one of our guests on here, the one who recommended you. Uh, he mentioned that you actually had a discussion with Hawkins wherein you uh, basically gave him the concept of what you were you were teaching out there, what you were on the road out there with. Dawkins? You mean Dawkins, Dawkins, excuse me. Dawkins. You're talking about Stephen Hawkins, the uh, physicist. You're talking about Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist. All right, why don't you be quiet for a second? <laughs> <laughs> so I got the name a little mixed up. All right. Yeah, well, that's okay. But but anyway, <laughs> but uh, this uh, this guest speaker we had was actually pointing out that as you were speaking with him, that he stated to you, of course, uh, from what I understand, he wouldn't come public with it, but uh, he stated to you that your uh, understanding of it and what you were talking about was the best he had seen. Was that correct? No, that, no I, I never did say that. Let me tell you exactly what happened, because I want to go on record accurately here. Uh, Connie, my wife, has known Richard Dawkins for many years. Um, my wife is an internationally known science writer. She's written four science books. Um, her first two books, uh, From Gaia to Selfish Genes and Evolution Extended, are both MIT Press books. Um, her uh, next book was The Ghost of Evolution. Actually, that was her most recent book. It was Amazon.com's top recommended science book for three months. And uh, Green Space, Green Time is Copernicus books. And so she and Richard have known each other, and she's the one that makes sure my science is, is impeccable in my book. Um, but what Richard, I asked Richard to, if he would be willing to let me reprint a letter that he wrote to his 10-year-old daughter at the time, uh, I think in 1995 he wrote this letter to his daughter, uh, and it's, it's included as the last chapter in his book, A Devil's Chaplain, and it's just a brilliant letter. It's absolutely vintage Richard Dawkins, uh, the, um, and he makes all the points that Richard likes to make, but what he does is because he's speaking to his 10-year-old daughter, whom he loves deeply, and because uh, he's communicating to a 10-year-old, so he's using analogies and metaphors appropriate for a 10-year-old. There's no edge. There's no, there's no edge. And so I, I read this letter and I thought, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. I've got to have this in my book. Well, my publisher said, what are you, crazy? Richard Dawkins is never going to let you reprint a letter that he wrote to his daughter in a book called Thank God for Evolution. Well, I sent him a, an email and asked him. Within 48 hours, he responded and he said, sure, go for it, Michael. He said, I wish you and Connie the best. He said, uh, but uh, don't expect me to endorse your book. Actually, his exact words were, he said, because yeah, I, I sent him in a separate email, and I thanked him you know, for letting me use the letter. And then I asked him if he, uh, when I sent a copy of the galley, I asked him if he'd be willing to read it and, and uh, if he liked it and endorse it. I was pretty sure he'd like it. Um, but he responded back. He said, Michael, he said, I wish, wish you and Connie the best. I really do. He said, but do you honestly think anybody as hostile to religion as I am could possibly endorse your book? No way. So that's the truth of what happened. <laughs> Well, that sounds about right. Uh, going back to what you said earlier, um, you have a naturalistic worldview. Do you accept the existence of any miracles? I'll tell you what. When I wrote my book, I had a 400-page book complete with pictures, and I'm sitting on my laptop computer in the middle of a field. I'm not next to anything. And I sent this book to a hundred, actually it wasn't quite a hundred at the time, but I sent this book to probably, I don't know, 60 different people. 
around the world. And I thought, hell, if this ain't a miracle, nothing is. So yeah, I believe in miracles, but I don't believe in unnatural miracles. So you don't accept, say, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, resurrection of Jesus? No. Well, see, one of the things I talk about in, in Appendix B of my book is where I talk about the naturalizing or the realizing of miracles. And I have Appendix A, is Richard Dawkins' letter. So I want people to read Richard Dawkins' letter before they read my chapter on, or my appendix, on the realizing of, say, for example, the virgin birth and the resurrection and other miracles. Um, in fact, I think the title is, is Realizing, R-E-A-L, capitalized R-E-A-L, Realizing the Miraculous. And so what I'm talking about there is if you go back, if you look in history, throughout every culture, no matter where you look in the world, you have pre-natural stories that are fantastic. That is, they have fantastic elements that if you took those elements, literally, they'd be supernatural. You've got gods and goddesses flying and tempting and talking, and you've got angels and demons fighting and everything. You've got all the stars stopping in the sky and heralding one-time events. You've got all kinds of really cool, fantastic things, things that happen to all every one of us at night. I mean, these are every night occurrences in our dreams. We have all kinds of fantastic experiences that happen to us in our dreams that if those things were literally true, we'd all be having miraculous or supernatural experiences every night. So it's not a surprise that long before we could have possibly had a natural understanding of how that ocean was formed, how that mountain range was formed, how the moon got there, how did we get here? All the big questions in life were answered in pre-natural ways using night language, that is mythic poetic language. And if you interpret any of those things as literally true, you, you do violence to those stories in the worst possible way, in my opinion. So how would you, say, realize the feeding of the 5,000? Uh, or turning see. water into wine? I would say that those were stories that emerged most likely. I mean, I want to be humble about this, but I, I would imagine that those were probably stories that, that, that emerged in the community of those who followed Jesus probably two or three decades, four decades after he lived, um, and uh, to, 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 to point to his divinity, to point to how, how special this guy was, that his message was really important. I mean, in a world where there were, I mean, one of the things I did research on, I discovered that there were 27, at least I could find, maybe there's more, but 27 different stories of virgin births in the ancient world prior to Jesus. In other words, when Jesus was born, assuming he was a, a literal human being that actually lived, which some people doubt, but I think it's probably true. But um, there were 27 stories in the ancient world of virgin births. So it's, it, the argument could easily be made that the divinity of Jesus wouldn't have been taken seriously. Anybody trying to claim that this guy was divine wouldn't have even been taken seriously in the ancient world had he not been born of a virgin. So it's not a surprise that we see two of the gospel writers telling stories of his, his uh, supposed virgin birth. I mean, it, it makes sense given the way the world operated that time. But if you interpret those stories literally, then you're, 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 you're missing – well, <laughs> put it this way. If, if, if you look in the past and see that God did all this really cool, miraculous stuff in the past, and today it's just like, wow, boring, kind of everything happens naturally, then you're left to assume that God doesn't speak or God doesn't act today. And, or, or if you have a concept of God. I mean, some people just discard the notion of God altogether and they, they solve it that way. But if there's legitimacy in having a personification of ultimate reality, which all cultures have done, so clearly it's part of our brain structure that we do this, if there's legitimacy in that, then it seems to me that God speaks today collectively through evidence, through empirical, cumulative evidence. That's the way God speaks. God speaks, uh, the way I say it in my book is I say facts are God's native tongue. And so yeah, I would say that every story, every scripture passage, every religious tradition that purports to say God said this or God did that, what you're really reading about is what some person or group of people thought or felt or wished or interpreted reality as saying or doing. Often is almost always I'd say is justification after the fact or to make some theological point. In other words, had ABC News or CNN been there to cover the, 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 the moment of divine revelation, there'd be nothing to show on the evening news, nothing miraculous to report other than what was coming out of someone's mouth or pen or whatever folks wrote with back then. And if we, and if we don't understand this, we, 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 will, we trivialize the divine, we trivialize God, and we, we mock the notion of a divine communicator if we, if we claim that God spoke more clearly to humanity as a whole through the uh, dreams and intuitions of uh, ancient goat herders and uh, fishermen 
than God speaks today through cumulative evidence discerned by the worldwide you know, community of scientists alive today. Well, um, one question I have is, what is your view of Christ? Now, you, you point out that uh, you were able to find out all these paganistic births, which that's something Charlie and I have actually discussed uh, previously, is all the things that uh, Judaism and Christianity have actually taken from paganistic cultures. I mean, all the way back from taking the sacrament from the Egyptians, so on and so forth. So, uh -huh. what is your view on Christ in and of itself? I mean, do you believe that he is your savior? Do you believe that uh, that he was a, a, just a, a good prophet, a good teacher of uh, of modernistic yeah. views? What is your belief in Christ? To ask, do I believe in Christ, or how do I understand Christ, is to collapse day and night language. Is to collapse literal science descriptive language and mythic night language. Um, there was never a person called Christ. Christ is the mythic name given to Jesus, uh, possibly while he was alive, but certainly after he was gone, um, that pointed to his the, the fulfillment that these people believed that he had uh, in terms of Old Testament prophecy and that sort of thing. So there was the person of Jesus, and then the, the, the Christ is all the mythic stuff that was laid on to him by his followers. Um, uh, to point to the fact that he was divine, or to point to the fact that you know that you know if you walk the path he walked, you'll uh, experience heavenly joy in ways that you don't if you won't or whatever. So I'm I'm beginning to get a sense of where you guys are coming from, and I think I'm going to be rather frustrating to you because I doubt we share. I mean, I doubt we 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 differ too much in terms of our worldviews. Uh, I'm a naturalist. I'm a I'm an utter, total naturalist. I am based in my best... I mean, I, my book would not have been endorsed by five Nobel Prize winning scientists, nor by many other leading uh, uh, science, science people, science luminaries, including leading skeptics. I mean, I just did a program last week as part of Skeptic Magazine's uh, Distinguished Lecture Series at Caltech. You know, Michael Shermer was the one that invited me to do it. And, uh, you know, he's one of the best known skeptics alive today. And uh, he loved my program. He loved my book. So you're not going to find anything um, where I'm coming from in my book, my public programs, or anything else that you guys are going to be able to, you know, kind of even shoot at uh, in terms of the way that I'm sensing that you probably normally uh, are able to, to, you know, <laughs> blow out of the air or out of the water, uh, typical religious people. Well, we, we, we actually don't look to blow people out of the water. What, what we're trying to do is just understand where people are coming from, and that's what I'm trying to figure out here is what is your belief system? I think I get I don't have any, I, I don't have any beliefs. You don't I have any. I, 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 I don't have any. There, there's nothing in my worldview that is unnatural, supernatural, mystical, woo-woo, theological in terms of otherworldliness or anything else. So nothing. I guess a question out. You're. Do you still you still consider yourself evangelical? Yeah, but you'd have to read my blog called "Why How and Why I'm a Pentecostal Evangelical" gotcha. because what it is is it's an identification of how and why when I use the term or when the media uses the term for me that he's a Pentecostal or he's an evangelical. Here's what I'm meaning by that, and here's what I'm not meaning by that, and why I interpret it in a natural way. And I think over the course of the next fifty years, we are going to see a profound—I would even call it a revival although it's not reviving what was in the past. It's a, it's a naturalizing of Christianity, a naturalizing of evangelicalism, a naturalizing of Buddhism, a naturalizing of, of, of Hinduism. All the religious traditions are going to be, over the course of the next 50 to 70 years, not just tolerating an evolutionary ecological worldview, but they're going to wholeheartedly embrace it because they'll, they'll see that their own core insights, their own core doctrines, or their own core you know, mythic truths are actually unleashed, unlocked, uh, when, when interpreted in a natural way. Well, that's actually something we've discussed, and uh, well, one of the things I see is happening is, and and one of the one of the questions I want to ask you is, uh, what we've seen happening is, is a lot of people, as more naturalism occurs, so on and so forth, religion is actually starting to go down, especially in America, where Christianity is concerned. Um, a lot of people are actually no longer going to church; they're calling themselves the nuns, meaning uh, they don't really have any sort of religion. So my, my question to you is, uh, well, it's kind of a two-part question, is with, with your views, um, how is it you go forward and you, uh, you try to talk to people and convince them that evolution is a good way of, uh, of combining religion, so on and so forth, kind of moving them towards evolution with their belief systems? I mean, um, 
Well, I challenge the, yeah, I challenge their belief system. See, I, I'm not an accommodationist. I'm not one who's basically says, go ahead and keep your supernatural, mythic, otherworldly beliefs. It fits just fine with evolution. That's not where I'm coming from. I'm a transformationalist. I'm out to transform religion along ecological evolutionary lines. That's what I call the realizing of religion. So it's about letting go of a literal interpretation of the mythic night language and interpreting it the way it always always was interpreted you know, for many, many years before we started having this literalistic thing the last few hundred years with a, with a mechanistic worldview in a metaphorical way. And so, for example, for me, when I say, you know, uh, uh, God loves me, I'm speaking metaphorically that, you know, I trust reality. Uh, I trust life as it really is. Um, I celebrate time. I have faith in time. I have trust in the unfolding of the universe. Those are all uh, natural ways of saying what religious people sometimes say when they say, I have faith in God. Um, so to, to answer your question more directly, I speak wherever I'm invited to go. I'm not beating down the doors of people who are resisting me. So people who believe that evolution's of the devil and all the evils of the world can be attributed to Darwin don't invite me into their church. Um, but I mean, occasionally a, a courageous InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group will invite me or a progressive evangelical church, uh, like an emerging church, will invite me. Um, but usually I'm speaking to more moderate to liberal Catholic and Protestant Christians. I've done tons of Unitarian, I think I spoke to 350 Unitarian Universalist churches. Uh, in fact, I had a reporter in Dallas ask me, he says, I see you've been, done an awful lot of Unitarian Universalist churches, why is that? And I said, because that's the low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's the, it's the easy pickings when it comes to evolution, you know, they're already there. I don't have to deal with biblical literalists. Um, but what, I'm, what, what Connie and I are both trying to do, as, as passionately and as enthusiastically as we, as we know how, is to show people that all the major bennies, the big benefits that religion has given them traditionally, you know, uh, a, a sense of trust in the future, uh, a sense of gratitude for the past, uh, a sense of inspiration in the moment and discernment and support to live an integrous life, to live a good life, I mean a really great kick-ass life, that all of that, those things have been traditionally supplied by mythic, otherworldly, supernatural sounding stories. And now science can provide, in a much more naturalized way, all those main benefits, but it does so not at the expense of the religious traditions by putting them down and making them wrong, but it says, no, look, your night language can be reinterpreted in a day language way uh, as metaphor. And so, yes, there are people who are becoming nuns. There are people who are leaving their religious traditions because they just can't stomach all the, either the hypocrisy or the supernatural otherworldlyism uh, or the dogma or whatever. And I'm not trying to reach those people necessarily, although I am trying to give them a sacred, meaningful way of thinking about the history of the universe. So I am trying to share evolution in, in, in the most inspiring ways possible with those kinds of folks, and I get a chance to speak to them quite a bit. But uh, I'm mostly trying to speak to religious people who are still part of their religious traditions, and for whatever reason are either dealing with the conflict or not dealing with it, or in some way uh, they haven't wholeheartedly embraced evolution. They, have, they certainly don't see it on par with their religious scriptures. And so I'm trying to lift science up. I'm trying to lift an empirical, evidential, naturalist worldview up and say this is better guidance than ancient religious texts can possibly be. And in fact, if we, if we continue to, I'd say it this way, there's a cost, there's a severe cost to um, being guided by ancient texts rather than science. And the biggest cost is, is uh, the fact that we can't know what it is to be an integrity, that is to be aligned with reality as reality really is, if what we're looking at are 2,000-year-old maps of what reality is like. Now, uh, the traditional knock against um, evolutionary theory by the fundamentalist Christians is that it's uh, bloody, it's uh, progressed only through suffering and pain and death of organisms, and it's um, nature red and tooth and claw, etc., etc. Uh, how would you respond to these people by saying, uh, give an example of how evolution is inspiring, I guess. Well, yeah, I'll tell you that several of the things that inspire me about evolution. One of them is death. When you understand from an evolutionary perspective death at all nested levels, I mean, like nesting dolls, subatomic particles within atoms, within molecules, within cells, within organisms, within planets, within galaxies, at, at, at every nested level, death is essential in the universe. It plays a creative, generative role 
And to use religious language, death is no less sacred than life. If it weren't for the death of stars, there could be no planets, there could be no life. If it weren't for the death of plants and animals, there could be no food. If it weren't for the death of fetal cells in the embryonic stage of development, we'd all be spheres. I mean, once you circumnavigated the globe, once we had empirical proof in the early 1500s that the world was finite, not infinite, you combine an understanding of a finite world with an understanding of population, and you realize very quickly, if you want a, if you want a world of children, you have to have the death of elders. Because think about it, in a finite world, if all you've got is birth with no death, pretty quickly you're wall-to-wall people, wall-to-wall skunks, wall-to-wall bacteria 60 feet deep. So it doesn't take long. So death, understanding death from an evolutionary perspective inspires me. It doesn't take away the grief of death. I mean, and when somebody close to me dies, I still grieve. I mean, just in the last year and a half, two of my closest male friends died of, of pneumonia. And, uh, and I grieved their death. Um, uh, Thomas Berry, my great mentor, died two weeks ago. I grieved his death. I'm still grieving his death. So it doesn't take away the sting or the pain of death. But what it does do is it gives it a cosmic container. It, it, it says that death is not a mistake. It's not a cosmic you know, problem. And we humans aren't responsible for the existence of death in the universe. Um, and the little deaths in our own lives, not just physical death, but the deaths of whatever, uh, uh, perhaps have a creative, there's a creativity at work that we wouldn't have the eyes to see as long as we're blaming and judging death. So that's one way. Stardust. We now know, we don't believe, we know, we empirically know, 99% of the scientists of the world would agree, in fact, all the astrophysicists would agree, that our bodies are made of stardust. They're made of, you know, stars create the very periodic table of elements. They explode in supernova explosions and, uh, uh, and red giants, you know, flaring out carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. And so, you know, we are literally stardust of all of the place. Now the stardust can have a conversation with itself like this. I mean, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Carl Sagan, in fact, when I uh, speak in um, church services on Sunday morning, I'll often say, this morning's scripture reading is from cosmologist Carl Sagan. And it's the way he ends his cosmos series. He says, we are the local embodiment of a grown to self-awareness. We've begun to contemplate our origins, star stuff pondering the stars. So this notion that we are stardust, that our, that our ancestors include the stars, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Marlon Lavanar, he's, a, he's a, a minister of a very large uh, Unitarian Universalist church in Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma. He says, you know, we've all heard some fundamentalist-minded person say, don't tell me I'm related to monkeys. But now that we understand DNA and have cracked its code, we know that we're not just related to monkeys, we're related to zucchini. So let's get over it. And so we're, we're related to all of life, we are related to the stars, and I find that deeply, profoundly, religiously inspiring. Um, Another thing that inspires me is that the chaos and breakdowns that have consistently occurred throughout all of evolutionary history, without exception, have continued to catalyze creativity and transformation. In fact, if you look at the history of life, the main thing, the number one thing that has catalyzed and furthered creativity and transformation has been chaos, breakdowns, and bad news. So knowing that, I trust the chaos of my life. I'm inspired to deal with the challenges and the chaos of my life in a whole new way than if I didn't have that understanding. And I get that understanding not from ancient religious texts. I get that understanding from the history of the universe. And when I use the word evolution, that's what I mean. It's the history of cosmos, earth, life, and humanity as one sacred. I mean, I could go on. You don't want me to go on. I could go on for two hours just on the topic. <laughs> How about guidance, moral guidance from evolution? Because one of the, one of, again, one of the main complaints is that Evolution led to eugenics, right, in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, that was. And I uh, would Glenn argue. Beck who was bringing? Yeah, that I would argue against that, saying that that that's an is ought fallacy. You're trying to derive uh, an ought from an is. Um, and, well, here's the thing. Okay, l- let me take that one on. This is great. Okay, first of all, the whole idea that you cannot derive an ought from an is emerged, that, that line of thinking came into being long before we had an evolutionary understanding. I think it was Hume, wasn't it? At least. It wasn't, yeah. So at any rate, it, before we had an, a, an understanding of evolutionary emergence, that came into being. See, that is only true if you ignore patterns, if you ignore trends. If you look at trends, especially trends that have been, about, you know, have been at work for, you know, in some cases, millions of years, uh, certainly trends that have been around thousands or hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, millions of years, then the trajectory of that trend gives some guidance, it seems to me at least, in terms of how to move forward. For example, one of the things, one trend that we see throughout all of human history, and we also see it in the, in the pre-human world, is the trend toward greater complexity, greater interdependence, and greater cooperation at larger and wider scale. I mean, 
you know, that's how prokaryotic bacteria created the eukaryotic cell. That's how eukaryotic cells created multicellularity and so on. And in the human realm, it's obvious. Nobody debates that. And, you know, the idea that, that, you know, at one time we cooperated among families and clans and everybody else is the threat. And then we began to cooperate at the scales of ethnic tribes and all of the tribes are the threat. And then we began to cooperate at scales of, you know, of chiefdoms and kingdoms of the threat. And what drops the challenge of difficulty occurs, and we figure out that we need to survive, and we can survive to, together better than, they can, than we can independently. And when the system figures out how to align the self-interest of the parts with the well-being of the whole the parts are part of, a new level of complexity emerges. And we see larger circles of compassion, larger circles of, of care, larger circles of consideration. So it's not a leap to say that we ought to expand our circle of compassion to the entire human race at this point, because we, in fact, if we don't do so, we're going we're gonna to take ourselves down. In a world where weapons of mass destruction are getting smaller and smaller, smarter and smarter, and ever more easy to obtain, if we don't have compassion for people that, we used, that our grandparents hated or feared, we're in serious trouble as a species. So I think when we look at primatology, uh, Franz DeWall has written some great stuff, Our Inner Ape. Michael Shermer from Skeptic Magazine, his fabulous book called The Science of Good and Evil, Why People Cheat, Gossip, Care, Share, and Follow the Golden Rule. These are all books that are deeply uh, 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 and powerfully articulating an evolutionary ethic, uh, a naturalistic ethic that's grounded in evolution. Uh, so we're, what, 35 minutes in? I think I found the first thing I disagree with you on. I don't That's know. I, I disagree with him on death. <laughs> I mean, my okay, okay, was, let's take let's take these one at a time because this is great. I was right, I was hoping right. we'd find something. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so I think I think selecting uh, cooperation, and compassion, is uh, uh, God, I can't remember the the fallacy, but it seems to be a case of special pleading. You choose something that seems to be good because you think it's good in advance and you uh, select that apart from all the other stuff that's out there such as us killing each other um, it seems to me that there may be more across species anyway killing and murdering and parasitism yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're going back to the old naturalistic fallacy I'm not, ta I'm not looking at the natural world and then seeing what's natural and then saying oh we should be doing that no I'm not saying that at all that seemed to be what you're saying, I'm saying, I'm saying no no no, I, no what, what I was saying was that it, it, Robert Wright wrote an award-winning book called The Moral Animal. In fact, Bill, uh, he, he also wrote The, the, the uh, Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny. Bill Clinton, in his last year of presidency, was so evangelistic about Non-Zero that he had his whole staff read it. And it's all about the evolution of complexity, cooperation, and compassion at larger and wider scale. And it's, it's just, there's nothing woo-woo about that book. It's grounded in our best science. It's not a belief. We don't believe that human cultures have consistently found ways of expanding their circles of compassion. It's an empirical fact. That's not what I'm debating. I'm debating taking that trend and applying that as a moral guidance. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying that people's natural... See, this is the thing. One of my mentors is Joanna Macy. And she says, this shift, the shift from seeing ourselves as separate creatures on Earth to seeing ourselves as a mode of being of Earth, of Earth, that we are the universe becoming conscious of itself, that we are nature achieving the, such a degree of complexity, the universe has achieved such a degree of complexity that in this solar system, the universe could begin to contemplate itself, that we're the universe becoming aware of itself, literally, okay? That's not a belief, that's just, that's just a fact. Having this perspective, she says, is essential to our survival because it can serve in lieu of morality and because moralizing is so ineffective. She says, sermons seldom hinder us from pursuing our self-interest. I mean, as a preacher, I can tell you, I'm, I can preach on blue in the face, and people are going to do what's in their own perceived self-interest, regardless of whatever I preach. So Joanna Macy says, what we need is to be a little more enlightened about what our self-interest is. For example, it would never occur to me to say, Chuck, Layton, don't cut off your legs. No, no, really, don't cut off your leg, because your leg's a part of you, and you know it. Well, so are the trees in the Amazon basin. They're our external lungs, and that's what we're waking up to, is that we are our world, and what we do to our world, we do to our larger body, we do to our larger self. So, for example, my morality, my ethics why I'm committed to justice and to peace and to sustainability, why I'm committed to doing everything I possibly can in my lifetime to ensure a healthy future for as many species as possible on this planet is not out of any sense of oughts or shoulds. In fact, Arnie Ness, one of the great founders of uh, the Deep Ecology Movement, said responsibility is a treacherous basis for conservation. It's got to come from love. For me, it's simply about I love this planet like I love my own body. 
and I am seeking to preserve the health and the well-being of this body of life of which I'm a part in the same way that an immune system, that my immune system of my body takes care of my body. It doesn't do it because it thinks it should or it ought to. It just naturally does it. And I'm naturally committed to the health of, the being, uh, of this planet. So it's not, I'm trying to, I'm not looking at the natural world and saying, okay, where am I going to get my philosophical moral principles? It's not that at all. Gotcha. It's sort of a morality of extended self-interest. Very much so. Yes, exactly. exactly. The greening of the self or the, or the, 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 the largening or widening of, of one's sense of self. Yeah, a broad egoism. Yeah. All right, what was your problem with death? Well, first, can I comment on what uh, you just said? Yeah, thanks. Sure. Thanks very well, much. Well, well, I thought we closed that <laughs> off. No, all I was going to say is you must have a lot of trouble with, with some Christians because, I mean, a lot of them believe that, uh, that there's no reason to take care of this planet because God's going to be coming soon, judgment's coming soon. I mean, that's actually something my family uh, has to deal with in and of itself because, I mean, they always buy the biggest and uh, best cars that, drive about 10 miles per gallon. <laughs> you forget he's not often talking to these Well, Christians. I realize that, but I'm saying that <laughs> well, you no, probably... I, I speak to Christians all the time, but you're right. I don't I don't often get a chance to speak to the most fundamentalists, the people who are most antagonistic. Where, but you're raising a really important point. We're which in Salt is, Lake, you know, and we're surrounded by the most fundamental Christians. Yeah, oh, right. yeah, yeah. It yeah, colors yeah, our right. worldview, I think, a little bit and biases it. But go ahead. You said it brings up a good point. Well, the other point that it brings up is that it's not a surprise that, that, that America is not leading the world with regards to our response to global warming. When one in three Americans believe these are the end times anyway, so why bother? In other words, our worldview matters. That's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so evangelistic about evolution is, is that, in fact, I would say that evolution is the only thing that can save the world from what I call the seven deadly sins of old-time religion. And what I mean by old-time religion is religion that doesn't get yet that the universe is creative that God's been creating for billions of years. And that truth, you know, we can get more truth and moral guidance from, from, uh, from science uh, than ancient texts could possibly hope to offer. So just real briefly, this is what I call the, the seven deadly sins of, of old-time religion, I would say, are um, that old-time religion or flat-earth faith trivializes God and gospel. It divides science and religion. It desacralizes nature and blasphemes death. It fails our children, causes untold suffering, and it blinds us from seeing our way out of the current global integrity crisis. And so those, I, I, I maintain, are the seven deadly sins of old-time religion. So that's why I'm so evangelistic about trying to get a, an evolutionary worldview uh, to religious people. Because, yeah, there's a, there's a toxic consequence of people believing that the best guidance comes from ancient books uh, rather than, than empirical evidence. All right. Well, uh, actually, I don't know if there's going to be much conflict in what I disagree with what you were saying about death, but uh, <laughs> give it your best shot. Give right? it, I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, uh, it, it sounds to me like you were saying death is the natural order of things because I mean, you did comment uh, that if uh, none of us died, we would fill up the earth, so on and so forth. And I mean, uh, it. Forgive me. I'm not looking to offend, but it, it sounds like you're trying to put a touchy feely sort of sense on death, and my view of death and, uh, I guess, evolution is adaptation. If it was evolution's uh, way about it, and if we could do a, a quick leap, I think that we would live for a very long time and, uh, and you know, propagate, fill up the earth, um, because that's basically what evolution is. It's the survival of the fittest. So if you have a creature that as it moves forward, gains strength, gains strength, then they're going to live longer, so on and so forth. So well, it's only until they reproduce. After reproduction, then they don't really care. Evolution has no action on it. If you live long enough to reproduce, that's why all like, the cancer and all the other stuff is coming to light now. So only now we live long enough we for live all long this stuff to, 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 to hit deal us. with it. Yeah. Um, yeah but well, in order well, to lengthen the lifespan, you'd have to put off reproduction uh for a long, long time. Like, <laughs> well, well, here's the, here, here's the thing. I mean, I, you know, when I I want to remind you, when I'm talking about evolution, I'm talking about the history of the universe. Okay, I'm I'm meaning the history of everyone and everything. You're talking and about we, like the Hovind sense of evolution. I'm talking about the entire universe story, the entire 14 billion years. No, 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 yeah. no. <laughs> no, no. Okay. I'm talking about the whole science-based 14 billion year history of the universe. And long before biological life, we see stars coming into existence. They, quote-unquote, live for anywhere from 10 million to, you know, many billions of years. Uh, and then they die. They burn out or they explode or whatever. And that 
creativity. In their dying, they create the very periodic table of elements. So it's, there's nothing touchy-feely about it. It's just the fact that the death of stars is creative. They do create atoms, and then that enriches the galaxy. And then that allows solar systems like ours to come into existence. In fact, if it weren't for the death of previous stars, our solar system could never come into existence. And, the, and then when you do look at the history of life, I mean, there could be no such thing as evolution if it weren't for the death of species. If it weren't for species going extinct, evolution could not be possible. That's one of the reasons why Darwin so appreciated the understanding of extinction that had only really come into existence in the early 1800s. So death, uh, so yes, I am trying to say that all aspects, well, not even all aspects, that'd be an exaggeration. Most aspects of what is undeniably real can be either interpreted in a or in a meaningful way. And, for example, nature read... See, this is the thing. We are interpreting animals. We can't not experience. And, and what interpretation means is there's always going to be a slant. There's always going to be a spin. There's always going to be either a positive or negative spin to any interpretation. So it's very unfortunate that when many people hear nature read in tooth and claw, that has a negative slant to it. What it means is, oh, how horrible. It shouldn't be this way. Creatures eating other creatures. Oh, how nasty. Nonsense. That is the way life is is creatures survive by eating other creatures, and that that's the way the body of life as a whole is. And so let me just offer a different, a different mythic spin on this. It's just as mythic, it's just as interpretive, but it carries a whole different uh, emotional feeling state with it, which is the entire body of life is constantly in a state of holy communion. Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. The whole thing is holy communion at the scale of, at the scale of a planet. Now, that's also mythic. It's also interpretive. It's night language. But it carries a very different feeling state than nature read in tooth and claw. And with regards to uh, survival of the fittest, what we've discovered in the last 30 years or so, and, I mean, again, I, if you just put into Google best evolution resources, the number one page you should get is my page on all the best links in the books that have to do with any of this stuff. But um, best evolution resources. But... One of the things that we know in the last 35 years or so is that it, life, the, the evolution, is at least as much about, if possibly even more, about survival of that which fits best, that which is most cooperative, that which uh, symbiotic. We see symbiosis at all different levels, which is not to say that there is not intense competition. Absolutely there is. But both are integral. Both are necessary to the evolutionary process. The, One, you know, the fact they usually drive each other at different scales. The uh, subtitle of your book, Thank God for Evolution, is how the marriage of science and religion will transform your life and our world. Uh, but it almost sounds like you're espousing the almost total victory of science over religion. Um, it almost sounds well, like you're saying natural is, uh, well, is the way to go, I guess. The uh, at least, at least well, the, the total victory of science over Biblical literalism, I guess I should say. It, 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 yeah, you're framing it in terms of a competitive zero-sum battle. So there's going to be a victorious side and a um, and a, a losing side. I don't see it that way. I see that, that religions have historically played a vital, necessary role, which is religions have given humans long before we could have possibly had a natural understanding of how. Religions gave people a sense of deep trust for the future. I mean, the fact is there's, there's certain human universals. There's every culture. One of them is that human beings tend to thrive when they can look to the future with a sense of trust rather than foreboding or fear or, or uh, you know, whatever. People who look to the future with fear don't thrive in the way that people who look to the future, including a future without them, with trust do. Same thing with the past. People who can look to the past with gratitude thrive better than people who look to the past with um, either fear or condemnation or judgment or whatever. I mean, one of the great goals of virtually any form of therapy is to get people to look at their past and find things that they could be grateful for that before all they could do is condemn. So that's a human universal, it seems to me. And it's also a human universal that, that we be inspired in the moment to be in action Given whatever crises, challenges, difficulties occur, that we are inspired to take action and we're, we're supported to living in deep integrity 
which is not often easy given the fact that our instincts didn't evolve to service in a modern world or a postmodern world or even a pre-modern world for that matter. Our instincts evolved to serve the survival and reproduction needs in an ancient world that we no longer live in. So that we all have cravings for sugar, salts, and fats because for 99% of human history it wasn't easy to find sugar, salts, and fats. You know, uh, we, one of the things we know scientifically is that the higher the testosterone, the more risk-taking occurs and the more people tend to either want to have sex or obsess about it. And this is and, and when, when status, when we see rises in status, so people become governor or president or, you know, any, in any rise in status, a vice president of corporation or whatever, their testosterone levels are going to go through the roof. Meaning they're going to take greater risks, so they're going to think more about sex. And when they're and women who are in childbearing years, when they're in the presence of high status males, their testosterone levels go through the roof. So my point in saying all this is we now understand this now from a natural perspective. Two thousand years ago, it was impossible to have a natural understanding of this stuff. So we not surprisingly see mythic night language stories like the fall of Adam and Eve or original sin that try to point to this fact that we now can speak about in this scientific way that we all have an unchosen nature, we all have inherited proclivities. And so, yeah, I don't see it as a science overcoming religion. I see science is helping religion to evolve itself, as religions have always done. In fact, Robert Wright's new book called The Evolution of God is all about the evolution of our God concepts, the evolution of our concepts of reality. And religions have always been evolving, and science is now helping religion evolve. And yes, I believe 50 years from now, the vast majority of religious people, certainly here in America, and probably much of the world as well, will not just tolerate, but will wholeheartedly embrace an evolutionary ecological worldview. And I don't see that as science winning over religion. I see that as science helping religion to evolve and really come into its greatness. I'm not sure that the fundamental aspects of Christianity um, would allow that. I, and and I, hope, I hope you're right about the 50 to 70 year time frame. I see it as becoming more entrenched as they're pulling their kids out of schools, they're homeschooling their kids, uh, I saw that um, Jesus, Jesus camp. Jesus camp. Oh, that was just um, sad. Where they're sending their kids to camp. They're they're teaching them um, all these literal uh, truths. They're they have their own. What is it? Um, Pledge of allegiance to the Bible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, this is. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I I have the same reaction. You guys do the stuff like that. But I also see that as the last gasps of of of, of the dinosaurs as they're dying out. I mean, here's the thing. I'm not trying to convert the 60, 70, 80-somethings. They're going to go to their grave with their mythic world views interpreted literally. I'm trying to reach the teens, the 20-somethings, the 30-somethings. And my hunch is that within the next 20 years or so, probably by the year 2025, if not sooner, that there's going to be such an articulation of naturalized Christianity that people are going to see that they can interpret this stuff in a natural way that makes so much more sense and that gives them all the core bennies there's not a single major benefit that they will not get from a naturalized reinterpretation, and then they don't have to check their mind out at the door. And so I think that by the year 2025, you're gonna, you know, it's going to be very hard to find Christians that would be caught dead believing in old flat earth Christianity. Now, and it's probably going to take another 30 years. Now, this is the Christians under 30. It's, then it's going to take another 30 years for their parents and grandparents to die off. So that by the year 2050, 2060, I think we'll, we'll see the the vast majority of Christians in America. And, uh, from a don't ask, don't tell policy to perhaps a civil union of religion and science, and then maybe in 50 years we get a marriage. That that would be something worth seeing. I, <laughs> I, I highly doubt it where Mormon theists are concerned, especially with BYU shutting well, everybody out. That's but, different, though, because yeah. Mormonism is a gerontocracy. It is ruled yeah. by old men. It will always be ruled by old men. And therefore ruled by their belief systems. And I, I and really think at that point they're so stuck in their Inherently conservative. But I think they will suffer from being increasingly ostracized because I think, I think you're right. I think that the young people don't care about gay marriage. They don't really care about biblical literalism. It's not even an issue with these guys uh, in, in college. Yeah. It's not yeah, even an I, issue. Yeah, exactly. Do you guys know Mike Earl? No. No. Oh, man, you guys got to be like Mike Earl. He's down in Florida. Check out Bible stories your parents never taught you. You guys are going to go nuts. You guys are going to cream your jeans on this. Bible stories your parents never taught you. Uh, it, just put it into Google. You'll get his website. It's reasonworks.com. And, uh, and and listen, he's got you free listening. Uh, you can listen, to, and, and you guys are going to love this guy. You'll, you'll contact him, I guarantee it. <laughs> hey, look at that. Well, we're already looking at it. You can listen to it, or buy the two-CD oh, yeah. set. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about? Uh, how, 
Well, within five minutes of listening, you'll know. But basically, what he does is he takes a look at all the biblical stories. Not all of them. But he takes a look at some of the core biblical stories that just get glossed over. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, if, that, that if you really look at them, you'd think, oh, my God, I can't worship this kind of a God. What is it? God must be the greatest terrorist of all time. Yeah, if you interpret these stories literally. There's a whole lot of that uh, in the Old Testament and, and quite a bit of it in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but he's, I mean, he's the one that, I mean, he, now he's an atheist. But he, um, more, po- more potently, more powerfully than anybody I've ever seen, uh, including Dawkins, Hitchens, you know, Harris, and the rest of them, uh, he uh, really articulates. Uh, I mean, I've never had a Christian or any religious person be able to listen to those, even the first two tapes, uh, the first two CDs of that, um, or just listen online, and not have their view of the Bible shift. Uh, it's, it's really powerful yeah. stuff. It's amazing what kind of uh, rose-colored glasses you, you do. Because I read this uh, stuff cover to cover when I was in high school, and none of I did too. Bothered. I know. I read yeah. the I read the Bible straight through twice, and then I read it a third time, a chapter to, you know over the course of a year. Yeah, and then you find out all this stuff. I found out through Dan Barker, um, uh-huh. who's the Freedom from Religion Association. Yeah, an ex. Um, I think he was an ex evangelical. Yeah, my wife just read his book, uh, his most recent book. But yeah, I mean, I. You know, who knows? I could be wrong. But I think, you know, what I've committed my life to and what I'm betting my life on, well, I'm literally, I mean, for seven years I've lived essentially homeless. All I do is travel North America with my wife, and we, we, are, are, we are passionate about sharing our best scientific understanding in deeply meaningful, inspiring, heart-touching, uh, you know, uh, motivational ways so that they come to embrace science over ancient texts, and they come to reinterpret and reframe their religious traditions in naturalistic ways. And I think that's one of the things, one of the most important things that needs to be done in the next 50 years. But I also celebrate people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, you know, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, uh, all, and the rest of them, uh, uh, who are basically hitting old-time religion hard and heavy um, and you know, I think that, I think we need a lot of different approaches. And uh, I'm glad I'm not doing the work that Dan Dennett or that Richard Dawkins or Mike Earl are doing. But uh, um, I believe uh, they're quite glad that I'm doing the work I'm doing, and they're hoping we're going to be effectively religious people. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I'd love to see when Kent Hovind gets out of prison <laughs> for you to follow him around. And- <laughs> and lecture at the same churches right yeah. after he does. Doctor Dinosaur, that that guy is just a crack up. He's going to be in there for another five or six years. But yeah. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. And I'm so ignorant. I don't. I mean, I, I don't know what. Why is he in the uh, in the slammer? Kent Hovind. He wouldn't pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed, you know, that little dinosaur monument, his little park that he had outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Church. Uh-huh. He raked in, I think, uh, over five million dollars in a single year and didn't pay a penny of taxes on it. And he. Uh, Paid his employees, didn't withhold any taxes, uh, said that they were all uh, volunteers for his church, but he never filed for a tax exempt status for his church, and he docked his, his volunteers in quotes uh, when they showed up late for work. He docked them in pay. <laughs> so they nailed him on it. He wouldn't cooperate, and he, he got 10 years in prison. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Eric Hovind, his son, has kind of taken over for him in the interim. All right. Well, anyway, that's uh, that's just kind of a, an entertainment we've uh, discussed over here is how Hovind has gone to prison and his son is defending him. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. You should follow him around. That would be a pretty entertaining circuit with him preaching and then you coming on right after him. I'd love no, to see that. I'd yeah, love to see that. <laughs> and I'll donate for that if you do it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll even toss <laughs> set up a, few a web page. I'll donate. Well, you know, and the interesting thing is, though, I mean, one of the things you said saying before, I forget which one of you said it, was that there's a lot of people that are leaving religion altogether, and, and that's completely understandable. But some people are finding their way back to religion in the best sense, not in terms of any other world of beliefs, but in the best sense of the term religio, religion, being reconnected to the whole, being reconnected to ultimacy, to the universe. Um, my, my publicist, uh, that happened. He, he read my book twice. He told, he told me, he said, this book totally changed my life. Um, and he said that, you know, it was as a direct result of reading my book that he felt he was able to re-embrace any notion of the sacred or the holy because he had been completely cast out of his church and everything else. Uh, He just turned his back on religion and never looked back, and now he's a thoroughgoing, you know, evolutionary um, evangelist like I am. Well, it's interesting. I doubt Charlie or I would ever go back just 
for the historical facts we've dug up about religion. And, well, I don't think he went oh, yes. back. He went right. back he went to, to sort of the no, no, no. reaccepting the, the divine. And, you know, it's kind of like what Stephen Hawking's, you know, when he appreciates the universe and the workings of the universe as the, quote, mind of God. You kind of reconnect with something greater than you. And that's well, I, I just figure when I die, no one's going to pay any attention. and There's nothing afterwards, so I'm not even going to It's because care. you don't have any friends. That's very true. But, yeah. <laughs> If if you went to church, you you get some. Friends. Oh oh, that's a, that's a very good point. But I don't think they'd like me. <laughs> no, well that's true. You might not get any friends. Actually, you know, you know so there's, there's one other thing that I, I I want to share if I could because it's something I've been doing a lot of thinking of lately, um, and it's related to um, why I'm so or one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this perspective is that um, well, I'd say it this way. The single most important factor in growing from you know childhood to adulthood is, I think, also the, the defining characteristic of, of sanity, which is being able to distinguish what's imaginary from what's real. I mean, in childhood, we find great value in what's mythic and what's fantastic. Uh, but in adulthood, we come to recognize that what's natural and real can be every bit as inspiring and even more so than, you know, and that the, the kind of the mythic stories can still have great value when interpreted metaphorically. Well, old-time religion, or what I sometimes call flat-earth faith, um, imagines that the religion's core doctrines and concepts are true only in an unnatural, otherworldly way. And what I'm offering is an evolution theology celebrates that so-called supernatural language is really pointing metaphorically to something that's actually real. I mean, when, when you think about it, supernatural and unnatural are synonyms. I mean, anything that's supernatural is by definition unnatural. And when you realize that, a huge fog bank lifts. I mean, is it any wonder that millions of young people are, are turning their backs on religion? If the so-called gospel or good news that they're being offered is a literal interpretation of something along this storyline, you know, an unnatural father who occasionally engages in unnatural acts, you know, supernatural interventions, sends, sends his unnatural son to work to the world in an unnatural way to offer an unnatural salvation from an unnatural curse brought about by an unnaturally talking snake. And those who believe in all this unnatural activity get to enjoy an unnatural heaven and everybody else suffers an unnatural hell forever. I mean... Is it really wonder, you know, any surprise that the new atheists are, are continuing to ride bestseller lists when religion is equated with this kind of so-called supernaturalism? So that's why I'm passionate about religious naturalism. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, and I think that one of the other things that uh, church has going against it is how excruciatingly boring it is. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, until especially, you actually get into the history of Especially it. for the young. I mean, you can, oh, it's hard yeah. for, for people under... 50 who, or 60 whose mortality is not looming before Ooh, them. Yeah. Where, where they're not starting to think, oh, I should really prepare. Right, that. exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it is excruciatingly boring unless you find some sort of connection point with it. Yeah, we were talking about how we, um, when we started doing this research into pagan precursors and ancient religions and the archaeology and the actual historicity of the stuff, uh, I actually like it more as an atheist than I do as a uh, than I did as a believer. Yeah, as a believer, uh, Sunday was pretty much nap time for me, and I went pretty devoutly for a very long time. But yeah, it just bored me, so I would just lay there and sleep. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I mean, I I think that's one of the reasons why the liberal churches are dying because they got dead dying music. I mean, you know, the only the only churches that are trying to, that are holding on in some ways, you know, because they have dynamic music that gets your body up. I mean, last week, it, this is totally cool. After I did the Distinguished Get Lecture Series at Caltech, sponsored by Skeptic Magazine, the very next week, I preached at one of the largest New Thought churches in the country, uh, Michael Beckwith Church uh, Agape Center in, in um, Los Angeles. And they got this incredibly rousing gospel choir, I mean, you know, very diverse congregation, probably 60% or more African-American. Um, and, man, they the music was so on fire. It was the opposite of boring. And then they gave me 40 minutes to preach. And, I mean, I've been called a cross between Pentecost, uh, between Carl Sagan and a Pentecostal preacher. I mean, I'm totally grounded in science. <laughs> but my style is I don't use notes, and people are just riveted on me for the, you know, however long I'm speaking. And so I just had such a blast in this very dynamic congregation. And I was getting all the, hey, man, come on, brother. You know, like, oh, I can deal with that. Uh, you know, I've never went to one of those churches as a kid. There are not too many in, yeah. in Utah. <laughs> There's a Mormon church on every uh, street corner, but not too many of those rousing yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of well, mega I, churches, I had, right? 
I had fun at a Unitarian Universalist church in California, in San Sacramento, about four years ago. I was smack in the middle of my sermon, about 10 minutes into the sermon, and all of a sudden there was a 4.6 earthquake that happened about maybe 10, 15 miles down the road. And the building's shaking, and the chandeliers, everything's moving and stuff. And I, and I just got real dramatic. I said, oh, the Spirit of the Lord! <laughs> and everybody busted out laughing and and then when I when I called my mother that afternoon, I said, "Mom, when I preach today, the earth shook." I mean, you figure you don't get a chance to do that one very often. Yeah, if Charlie or I ever said that, we'd probably be stoned on the spot. <laughs> it requires a little bit. Well, you know, Mike Mike Earl is also an ex Mormon. Really? Yep. Wow. We got to have him on. Yeah, we've got to. I've got to get in touch yeah, with this guy. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks for being on. This is a oh, really welcome. fascinating discussion, and uh, wish you luck with the work that you're doing and. Keep it up. Yeah, yeah. Keep hey. teaching people to take care of the planet, and evolution is a proper theory. <laughs> I love the idea of bringing evolution into churches because they keep trying to bring creationism into, into schools. schools. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Connie and I, Connie and I believe that you know, until churches start preaching and teaching evolution, until churches preach evolution from the pulpit and teach evolution in religious Sunday school classrooms, we're never going to see an end to the science and religion war in America. That's why you know we're 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 really about trying to take evolution into the churches and uh, you know who knows you know maybe we won't be successful but it sure gives us life to do it we love it yeah keep up yeah, the good work that's good great thanks we can change the textbooks like they tried in, te in Texas except we try to change the book of Earth the Bible slip new passages slip new passages into right. the Bible yeah, right. well I I do I I don't know if y'all saw the side of, uh, a picture of the side of our van we've got the Jesus and Darwin fish kissing with hearts between them and <laughs> yeah yeah actually I saw that I love that picture <laughs> we we get some interest we we were down in Texas uh, last January and we you know. Definitely had some interesting looks down in Texas. I uh, had a couple of interesting gestures flashed our way. Yeah, I'm sure. I wouldn't doubt that. I'm sure. In fact, that this, we, we, the first time we were in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, this biology professor looked at the side of the van and he goes, oh, great, you just piss everybody off. <laughs> <laughs> it seems it. Nice. All right, gentlemen, have a great time. Yeah, right. thanks Thank again. Appreciate much. it. Thank you. All right, bye-bye.